we're in gospel in the gospel of John. I wasn't didn't know if I would be here today, so I have my electronic Bible with me this morning, just in case. <laughs> and let's get on to the Gospel of John, chapter six. We managed to get through uh, pretty much the story part of this, but uh, we're now ready for the really important part. So, John, chapter six. And uh-huh. what verse did we stop at? Remember, they asked him for a sign, and then right. we were talking about that. No, that was verse thirty. Oh yeah. Yeah, we were in that sort of area, right? Yeah, uh, verse 30, they asked, what miraculous sign will you do that we can see and believe you? This is the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus did, and they tried to make him king. They tried to force him to be king. Well, if you believe in a king, you believe in force, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to uh, try to manipulate Jesus <laughs> or force him to take the throne. Uh, and Jesus orders them, to leave, and he orders his disciples, and it must have been very hard for the disciples to be willing to leave. So they ended up going across the lake, and uh, Jesus waits on the mountainside and prays, and he must be praying for them, that the light will dawn, that his kingdom is not of this world. And at some point in the night, he goes walking across the lake, and the disciples are terrified. They think it's a spirit ghost. And Jesus says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And he gets on the boat, and, and John says, immediately they were at the shore. <laughs> I was like, they were so busy looking at Jesus, they didn't realize how fast they got to the shore. Or maybe that boat moved a little faster. The wind was blowing, probably against them. So this was, this was a great miracle. And now the people are wanting more of the same. And the reason they wanted to make Jesus king after this miracle is, uh, as I mentioned last time, uh, the greatest need of an army, besides weapons and, and health, was food. Uh, if an army came to the end of their food supply, they came to the end, basically. Uh, you might remember from studying um, U.S. history, that during the Revolutionary War, that terrible winter that they, George Washington and his troops were camped, I can't remember, was it in Delaware? Valley Forge. Valley Forge, yes. That's it. Yeah. In Valley Forge, they ran out of food. And that was a very, very difficult time. So here's Jesus. You can feed 5,000 people. That's 5,000 men. And it doesn't include all the women and children that were along. And apparently there were a lot of women and men. Women as well as men uh, and their children. So the, the, the early church now is becoming already known for its inclusiveness. So now we come to the heart of the conversation, the extensive, extensive conversation that is extremely important. We talked last week about what a sign is. What, why did they want a sign all the time? This isn't the only time they ask for a sign. Why did they always want a sign? I want to pick up there again because I'm not satisfied that we really understand this. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still grappling with it myself. Um, how many people read the horoscope in America? A lot. They believe in it? They're at least intrigued by it. 
Mesopotamians read omens to find out the verdicts of the gods. But this sign is more of a miracle sign. And, and they even say, remind him, uh, you know, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, produce. He just did. He just did. And it, it doesn't make any sense to ask another sign. Why aren't they just rejoicing in the sign he gave? And I, to me, this is, again, a lust for power. And lust, lust for power... Uh, come in many forms. They can be very, very subtle forms. So in their lust for power, they wanted more and more and more. And that's the sign of lust. We're never satisfied until we have more power, more control, more things, more, more ability, more this, more that. So they're not satisfied. That's like the human psyche in general, though. You're never satisfied with anything you attain, so you just keep looking. And I think that's maybe part of the message that Christ is giving. He wants you to be satisfied and content and stop asking for the sign mm -hmm. and be, you know, satisfied yeah. with the presentation yeah, of Christ. Yeah, I like that. Let's keep that in mind as we read on. So we stopped with verse 34, I think. Okay, so thir starting with uh, 35. Doug, why don't you read? Um, read uh, verses 35 to 40. Then Jesus uh, declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I shall lose none, lose none of all that he has given me, but raise up at the last days, for my Father's will will be that everyone who looks to the Son and believe in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last days. This is unique bread, isn't it, that Jesus is talking about. I am the bread. And you, do, and, and, uh, you first come to him, you trust in him, and anyone who comes to him will have eternal life. And they are to, um some point... I think it's your version that says it, not mine. Uh, it's something, all who behold the sun, all who look at the sun. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. I have see the sun, and it's a little bland. Um, and, and trust in him. So come, look, and trust. That's, that's Jesus' formula for bread. And let's see where he takes this. Uh, I think it's important to read this whole, the rest of the chapter, and try to discuss it as a whole. Um, so, um, Jonathan, would you read verses 41, 41 to 51? Okay. Ten verses. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes that came down from heaven. <coughs> they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? 
How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And my version has an interesting thing in verse 41. Instead of the Jews, which is a term only found in the Gospel of John. I think most of the other Gospels use scribes and Pharisees, but John calls them the Jews. And that seems to be a specialized term. It's not all-inclusive of the Jewish nation. So my version has the Jewish opposition. Mm-hmm. So the Jews is a pejorative term. And I don't know if you know the history of the name Jew. But it is apparently comes out of uh, the term Judahites, Judahites, I should say, that were the ones who went to Babylon. And uh, they came to be called the Jews. This has strong Babylonian connotations. And, and I have come to believe that John sees the opposition to Jesus as coming from Babylonian influence. I, when I read my paper, that was one of the things it tried to show. So, um, that's, that's an interesting point. This is pretty much reiterating what he said earlier, isn't it? And, and the central core is, and they shall all be taught by God. That should, be, that should ring loud and clear in our ears, shouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Given that that's our motto. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone who has listened to the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except, no one has seen the Father uh, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is here saying, you don't know the Father unless you see him in me. And if you see the Father, then you come to me. All right, let's go on. But yeah, for, for, 43 is really interesting where he, you know, no one can come to me unless the Father has sent, sent me, draws him, you know, that we often think by searching we can find God. Or it's, it's really, there's a really a mystical dimension of where he's revealed to us or we're drawn to him where the spirit draws us and 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 that is through the spirit i think i i think i think the spirit is god's embrace uh, it is it is the reality of the love uh coming from the father okay uh carlos would you read verses 51 to 59 please 51 52 to 59, sorry. 
Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Verily I tell, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the blood, you will have no life in you. Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of, because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. I don't know if you can follow where Jesus is going in this. I want to say I don't want to say this is manipulative at all, but it is strategic. He first talks about it in more clear, relational, non-metaphoric language, right? In in the first verses that we read, uh, being taught by God, learning of Him, I come down from heaven. All you need to do is come, look, and trust. Uh, those are real, uh, concrete, uh, relational terms. There's no, me- there's no uh, metaphor that we have to grapple with, right? But he ends on this note. I am the living bread. This is for, back to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever eats this bread, and the bread I give... For the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews go, <laughs> gross. And this man give me, give him us his flesh to eat. They take it literally. Jesus is trying to transition them. He, they can't grasp the reality he's just given them. The come, look, and trust. They can't grasp that. So he shifts to metaphors and imagery. And he shifts to something very Babylonian. Mm-hmm. And that is that anciently the Babylonians believed that, this is according to the myth called Atrahasis, that human beings were created out of the flesh and blood of a slain deity. And so when Jesus says, Jesus changes that. Of course, he doesn't just wholesale take that and use it. He changes that metaphor to you eat my flesh. You assimilate it. You take it in. This is something voluntary. He can't force people to eat his flesh. Right? And then they debated among themselves. So Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Uh, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. My flesh is true blood, food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Uh, By the way, the word to eat, you need to know, is a word that's stronger than eat. It is to... It's katastheo, I think, and, and astheo is to eat, but katastheo is to gnaw, unless you gnaw on my flesh. 
I mean, he's really grossing them out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you never, it's always such an amazing passage. It's, it's like he gave them bread, they didn't catch on, and he tells them in nice ways. And then he just, and this got him in huge trouble. You know, this, this, this just about, you know, set up for his death, really, when he started through this battle. He made it, and he just kind of like, you, like you, you're going to say, you know you're going to get in trouble, but you're going to say the truth. <laughs> and he just laid it out so harshly, you know, so, yeah. and it's, it seemed, wasn't that extremely offensive he, to he, them? Yes, yes, he was, he was telling them they had to be cannibals. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, they're they're completely grossed out. And and you remember back to John three, when he tries to use this imagery of the new birth or a birth from above uh, on John and and um, on Nicodemus, and Nicodemus just can't get it, and he's taking it literally. And Jesus says, "If I tell you of heavenly things and you don't grasp it, what?" If you tell you earthly things and you can't grasp it, how can you grasp it if I tell you about heavenly things? This is the problem. It's such a powerful metaphor, Gene, because you look at how you assimilate Christ. You know, he uses, you know, eating his flesh and drinking. It has, you know, becomes, it has to become a part of you. I've never heard of the nine, you know, where you have, this is, it isn't just a cognitive belief or not just a, No, you have to, you, you have, have to wrestle with it. You have to wrestle with it. Sell your body. Not gnawing your, gnawing <laughs> on flesh means you, you're having to pull it off the bone. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so he's taking something very Babylonian and he's transforming it. Now let's see where he goes with this. Would they be aware of this Babylonian information? You know, you know they would. And here's how I know that. There's several articles written by a man by the name of Mark Geller, who's a, who's a biblicist slash Assyriologist. So he's very familiar with the ancient Near East. He's Jewish. And he has written a couple of articles showing the influences on the Babylonian Talmud. That there were words, actual words in Akkadian, wholesale put into the Babylonian Talmud. And that readers who don't know Akkadian can't get the joke. And that the fact is that there was a Babylonian priest during the Hellenistic period, during the Seleucid period, who wrote in Greek a compilation of myths and, and everything about everything about the um, rituals and, and all of that, because he was a priest. He wrote that in Greek. Barossa's work isn't, isn't available to us in, in its actual form. But we know that it was there because it lasted. He, this is during the Seleucid period, shortly after the time of Alexander the Great. We know it lasted into the third century because Eusebius a church historian quotes it that means that Babylonian influence goes clear into the third century AD uh, among Christians let alone among Jews uh, and, and there's studies being done now. This is a very recent trend in, in Assyriology, that there are studies being done 
that connect the dots in all over, both east and west. The Babylonian influence is, is very pervasive. Now, I don't know, back to your question, Doug, I don't know if the disciples knew about Atrahasis, but it's very possible the rabbis did, due to what Barosis wrote. And so when he uses that it would, sort of language, Even if they didn't know the work, they would know the idea. Mm-hmm. The idea would still be traveling. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, what? The idea about the flesh? Yeah, um, the idea of, of human beings being created from the flesh and blood of a slain God. Right, and so when they hear that, they think to themselves, why would we, you know, do that? Yeah. Why would we want to why would that we want to deified that? aspect of a person? Yeah. Maybe to become like that. You know, I, I think that Jesus is, is really meeting them where they are. And the, because the more I study the Gospels, the more I see these, these things that touch on Babylonian concepts that are still there in the Judea, into, into Judaism. They should have got that metaphor. They should have gotten that metaphor. They should have gotten that metaphor that saying, I am, I am yeah. the Son of God. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm go- my, my life is going to be given. But he doesn't say it the way the Babylonians would have said it. It's, it's this different. Instead of God making human beings from the flesh of a divinity... We have to choose to eat the flesh of the divinity. But he's saying he's God. You know, he's yeah, very he is. He is very clear. No, you know, and that's why he says you can't. You cannot come to. You cannot see the Father unless you see me. Uh, in essence. Okay, um, Shalina, would you read sixty? To 66. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So why do you think they rejected him? Why is the message harsh? Because they don't want to let go of that power that was being connected to a kingly personality or person. So that's hard to rationalize with and say, oh, we're going to have to lower ourselves with you. We're going to have to become cannibals. Mm. Are they still taking it literally or have they made any transition? Do you think at this point? No, it's very literal the way they interpret it. Yeah, it's 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 nasty. How can you talk like this? Um, but if they really think about what they're they've tended to believe, they know, like uh, Doug pointed out, that Jesus is really stating he's God. 
And they surely know because they use metaphors themselves. The, the rabbis used a lot of metaphor. Uh, they surely know that Jesus isn't talking literally. And is Deep it, inside. Is it just me or does Jesus explain that because he says the flesh counts for nothing? Yeah. We, um, that's below what we read, right? Yeah. Oh, no, wait oh, a minute. No, no, he says we, it right here. That. Yeah, yeah that, that's the key to me says, to this passage. Yeah. Does this offend you? What if you were to see the Son of Man going up where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. Mm -hmm. The flesh doesn't help at all. He's rejecting the Babylonian model. Mm -hmm. So in this he's saying, my teachings and what I'm giving you is what you That's eat, my not eating, not literally eating me. Right, right. He, he really leads them along to try to get them to make a transition, make a paradigm shift from literal, earthly, concrete thinking to something eternal and more real and more lasting. And this, this is the key. I, I thought we hadn't gotten there yet. I was, I was kind of busy processing a whole bunch of things at once. <laughs> um, I, didn't, I didn't really see that we had gotten there. Um, and we have. Yeah, and no. that's the point at which they leave. When he gets clear. It's so weird that they, like, after he so clearly explains it, then they're like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. But then, like, it goes to show that, you know, what you were saying earlier about what Jesus said to Nicodemus, like, if you can't understand earthly things, then how can I expect you to understand heavenly things? Because when he finally makes it clear that it's not an earthly thing, it's a heavenly thing, that's when they're like, okay, I don't understand this at all, and I'm leaving. Which is ironic. It is very ironic. I like what you said, though, um, Andrew, about this. they're still clinging to this kingly power. They realize at this point there is nothing powerful, earthly powerful, about this message. To me, it's very powerful. <laughs> <laughs> but it's internally powerful. Because to assimilate Jesus is to become like him. It's not to have power. It's to have character. Yeah, the flesh is sort of the ultimate symbol of externality. It is. Oh, is. I like externality. I always call it externalism, but I, externality... I'm going to change my vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like, um, I was reading a book where, like, when children are first understanding their identity and how, who they are, what the first thing they notice is the fact that, oh, I have this body. And yeah, I hit things, and it's sort of this barrier between, I guess, my soul and the outside world. So that is who they are. That is their identity. And so as Christians, we maybe also have that attachment between our body and our flesh to who we are. And Christ is saying here, I think, we need to separate ourselves from that belief, that paradigm, and realize that our identity is attached to Christ instead and goes beyond those physical barriers. And that... And, and it isn't wrong that he used the metaphor of the flesh. He's, he's trying to denote assimilation. It's trying to denote the closeness, the bond, the intimacy that we have with Jesus. Right. And, and how we get that is through his words, through, through his message, through his, his actions that we see, we come and see and trust. So they, many disciples turned away. Is this amongst the twelve that they're turning away, or no? No, this is a, the larger group. Yeah. So, uh, 
Let's see, 67, uh, Andrew, you want to read to... To 71? Let's see, we're... That's the end of the chapter. It's the end of the chapter. Read to the end of the chapter, and we'll start chapter 7. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. You know, he he didn't physically leave, but he may have turned away in his heart. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get into John so 7. So he did choose Judas? Because it says he chose mm-hmm. the twelve. So yeah. he did choose him? Mm. Okay. So maybe, maybe in listening to this, Judas did turn away. Maybe that was the, you know. That's interesting. That is kind of haunting where it ends, isn't it? That's the end of the story. We come to chapter 7, and it says, After this, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, and on and on. Um, So this is the end of the story. At the point of departure. And and to us, it seems, how could that split the church? I mean, in a sense, it did. The followers of Jesus had to choose. And many of them chose to leave. I think... That actually little passage can also be interpreted as an extension of the metaphor as well, though, because there will be those who are chosen amongst the believers and followers of Christ who do turn away mentally, if you will. Yeah. So what really is it, if we can recap, what is it really that leads them to leave? The type of power. That's okay. That, that, the that power. The problem of power. Uh, power. When you want power, you don't discern character. You don't discern moral uh, values. You don't discern the spiritual values. And therefore, you cannot comprehend love. You cannot comprehend self uh, self sacrifice. You cannot comprehend um, all the things that Jesus is doing and saying about His kingdom. Uh, is there anything else in terms of the mechanism? We have to embrace and sort of cherish the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. It has to be more than a, uh, some kind of legal formula to get us into heaven, doesn't it? It has to be something that, that, we en- that enters into us, that bec- we assimilate, that we comprehend, that we understand. And that we embrace. There has to be, it has to draw us to him. From exactly where we are. Mm-hmm. Not from some other point. So right. he uses that Babylonic yeah. metaphor. And for us, you know, we have our own places, our own things of understanding yeah. that we need to come from. And I think many of our understandings are Babylonian. At their root. And the thing, it, it, it still haunts me that they take things so literally 
and stumble over that literalism. And then when you tell them the message, the meaning, they reject it out of him. No, we'll take the literal, he means cannibalism, that's awful, we're going to leave him. <laughs> Which is convenient. It is convenient, yeah. But I, I think of some of the discussions we've had in the Adventist church, and I'm hearing <laughs> echoes, echoes. The, the verse says this, rather than looking for an underlining meaning, something bigger than the actual words. Well, I think this is, this is both um, stimulating to think about in terms of our relationship with Jesus. I think it's also very sobering that we not leave him. The, the real issue it, it comes down to following Jesus or not following Jesus. If we can simplify it. And Jesus always leads to the Father when he we follow him. Okay, let's close with that and have prayer. Father, we, we pray two things, that we may first assimilate your flesh, that is, your sacrifice, your, your love that was poured out for us, that we may assimilate it and let, let it become a part of our very being. And secondly, that we not cling to what is literal, but what we, that we look for the underlying meaning that is so much bigger. And finally, we pray that we will follow you and not huff off disillusioned because you do not feed our power and our egos. We pray for this for us and for our brothers and sisters around the world. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.